Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. For me, over the years in reading my Bible, the prophets have been, I think, the more difficult of the books uh, to study and read, and I think part of it has to do with this intense dialogue, this hypothetical dialogue that goes on between God and his people. This happens often. We have it in Malachi where God says something, his people respond, that is, through the prophet, uh, hypothetically respond, revealing their attitude. And so just studying a a prophet, you have to dig deeper to see what the context is, uh, what specific issues is the prophet writing to, how does that translate to the people of God today. Uh, There are many challenges, whereas when you read a historical book, you can follow that storyline pretty easily, or at least uh, easily enough. Or if you have uh, an epistle, a letter from uh, the Apostle Paul or Peter or one of the apostles writing or uh, one of the narratives in the gospels those seem to be easier to follow when you get to the prophets they can be a little intimidating in fact oftentimes uh, they are used to substantiate all sorts of arguments and discussions and details about the future when really prophetic literature means not so much about predictive prophecy but the declaration of god's truth in that day in that truth is still the truth today it's ageless and so what we seek when we're reading the prophets is what that ageless truth is in how it speaks to the people of God in all, all times. Malachi is no different. And even though it can be a little intimidating as we work through reading the language and the dialogue, as I mentioned, don't forget that he is a real person writing to real people who are living real lives, and their lives have become lukewarm. Their walk with the Lord had become lukewarm. You know, they've been back to the land. Ezra and Nehemiah had brought them back. The wall had been rebuilt. The temple restored. Theoretically, they should have been back in the swing of things as a people of God. But they were lukewarm. I mean, they did, their heart just wasn't with the Lord. And we can relate with that, brothers and sisters. We can relate with it. We can see all that God has done, brought us into the quote-unquote promised land. We're saved. We understand that God has called us to himself. But yet we find ourselves just kind of ho-hum in our Christian life. Well, this message is for us. And we began last week by talking about God's Sure love for us, this sovereign, unconditional, redemptive, elective love. It's not just a simple term love. It's, it's complex because it's divine love. It's covenant love. And that is the basis for reviving us, rejuvenating us. It starts there with a correct understanding of God's grace to us. Now Malachi will begin to expose some of the shortcomings in their lives, but always against the backdrop of God's covenant love for his people. Hear now God's word. Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. 
and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let us pray. Father, these words are heavy to us as we see our spiritual forefathers floundering in their faith. But Lord, we don't have to look far to see it in our own lives. Rekindle in us. Rekindle in us a flame, a fire that burns for you. Help us to be honest with our sins. Confront us with them. Lord, we know you love us, and we need this truth from you. I pray this in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Imagine you were a fly on the wall of the temple watching the people bring their sacrifices. Now, we read about sacrifices often, and I know it's difficult for us today because the form of worship, our formal worship, is going on. We're here, and it's rather clean. You didn't have to bring an animal. Uh, you didn't have to see it slaughtered. You didn't have to see it bled out all over the altar. None of that happens. Uh, that seems like an ugly picture in our mind, but that's the nature of the covenant people's worship before the sacrifice of Christ. And so imagine you're watching people bring their animals to the temple priest. And there's several priests who are on duty, so to speak. They take shifts, more or less. And that priest would receive the animal that you bring. Now, it's not just an animal you picked up out of the stall in your backyard. Okay, and they weren't ranchers either. So when we say they brought a bull or they brought a goat or they brought a sheep, this is like they had a herd of sheep. Now, some of them did, but most of them, the rank-and-file Israelite, especially those who were displaced and had just come back to the land, didn't have that much in the way of possessions, especially livestock. And if uh, livestock was their life, literally. It wasn't just living stock, but it was their food. It was their sustenance. And so it wasn't as simple as just, oh, it's time to go to the temple, and they grabbed a goat and ran to the temple. No, there was months of preparation in raising these animals. Uh, they probably named the animals. Uh, they probably didn't have too many of them, so they knew them. They knew who they were, what they were, how long they'd had them who their mother was, uh, from what offspring, or what offspring this animal had. It was, it was intimate. Uh, the children probably were involved with the raising of those animals. It cost money to feed them. They had to raise the crops to feed them. And uh, many of them didn't own a lot of land, especially coming back, so they didn't have huge portions to grow their food for their animals, so they probably had to buy a lot of that. So it was costly to raise these animals. And so now, as an expression of their worship, they're to bring an unblemished animal, which would be difficult given the fact if you only have a few animals, say you have four goats, and one of them is hurt, and you're thinking of feeding your family. Well, I'll just bring the hurt one, is what they started saying. Got farther and farther away from what God demanded. In fact, farther and farther away from realizing the promise of God was to sustain for them all they needed. So they are to give the unblemished one, and that means if you keep the sick one and the blind one, you still do that. You sacrifice by giving the one God tells you to give because he's the one that provides all of them. It's a concept that pervades the Bible. It's still in our lives today as we give offerings. Now, we don't give goats and bulls and sheep. But what do you give, brothers and sisters? When you start your day, do you think in terms of, I'm giving this day to you, Lord? Uh, 
changing this diaper, Lord, is the calling you've given to me, and I want to give that day and even that activity to you. Uh, going into that office and being a good worker, being a hard worker, is that an offering that you're giving to your employer, to yourself, your pride, or to the Lord? The time you spend, how is it an offering to the Lord? How are you having all of your life just completely immersed in offering, in devotion, in worship to the Lord? It's an important question for us because I would submit to you that what we have here is the high point of our worship together. You prepared to come here, to get here. And there's thought process that goes into coming to church on Sunday. If you have children, you have to plan. You've got to plan what they're going to wear the night before, what time they're going to get up, when they get their baths, all those kinds of things. So you have to plan to come. But I would submit to you that this is, this is the high point. It's, if you will, the epitome. It kind of tells us where the heart is for the rest of the week. Just like the worshiper here who comes to the temple with the goat or the sheep or the bull, they had to do a lot of preparation to get to that point, to bring that animal there. It involved their whole life and manifested itself, particularly at their temple worship on the Lord's Day. Now, would you agree with me that it is fair to say that what I offer to God, what offerings all throughout the day, not just your tithe or just something you give in terms of material wealth, but would you not agree with me that that does, in fact, reveal the state of my heart? Now, you don't know everything I give. You don't know what offerings I give through the day. I don't know what offerings you give, so I can't make judgment. I'm not here to do that. But is it not true that what you give to the Lord really does reveal your state? It reveals your devotion to him. It may be something only you and the Lord know or you and your spouse know or your family know. But doesn't it reveal the state of our hearts? And we know in the Scripture... In several places, and Luca tells us, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So scripture confirms that our heart is revealed by what we do. Proverbs 4.23, keep your hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So our heart's devotion translate into action. We'll know what is true by what we do. Now, that's not to say you're saved by works. We already got past that. But as far as knowing now that you're in right relationship with God, now what you do really explains how much you understand about that salvation, what it costs. Heart is used in scriptures, as one commentator, is the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is the part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. That's what we mean by our heart. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole. His feelings, desires, passions, thought, understanding, and will. The center of a person is his heart or her heart. Then what we do then, in fact, reveals the state of our heart. What I offer to God reveals this. And this is the problem we have in Malachi's day, and it's convicting for us. Let's look together for a moment at the text. I would like to first, though, preface by saying that when I speak of worship, when I speak of offering or devotion, I, again, want to emphasize it needs to be said again. I'm not talking just about our times of formal worship. In fact, I would say that the Bible describes lifestyle worship and formal worship, and they go together. They're, they're, they're married. In other words, your life, uh, every moment of your life is an offering to God. It's a response to his grace for you. It's a response to his greatness. So you respond to God with your life in all the details, every moment of every day. That's lifestyle worship. And so it's not putting on one face today and then having another one tomorrow at the office or at home or wherever you are tomorrow and the rest of the week. It's about 
every bit of our lives being devoted and responsive to God for what he's done. That's the lifestyle aspect of worship. That culminates when you're gathered together with the people of God in the formal times of worship. Imagine what God would think of us if we came here and put on faces, went through the liturgy, uh, put on my robe, and we looked all holy, but our weeks were lived far from God, that we never spoke to him through the week, we never acknowledged him in our family lives, we never gathered around his word at any time. Imagine what that would appear like to the Lord. I'm, I'm afraid we probably do that at times, don't we? But it's our lifestyle of worship and our formal worship with God's people. And our formal worship is accentuated, it's made better as we are living lives of worship on our own and touch points through the week with other families. So lifestyle worship and formal worship is what we are speaking of. And I would submit to you that what happens in Malachi's day in the context of formal worship is just showing what's really happening in their lifestyle worship. It'll eventually show. Consider for a moment what provokes us to worship. In the text, verses 1 through 5, we already know that the love of God, that is the sure love of God, uh, he talks about the elect of God. I, I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? And then he goes through that whole elective process of Esau and Jacob and loving Jacob and rejecting Esau. We spoke of that last week and some the week before. The love of God, the sure love I described it, the acronym sure, meaning his sovereign love. He, on his own, chooses to love us. Unconditional, it's not based on something you've done. Redemptive, it costs something. The table of the Lord reminds us of that. The sacrifices remind us of that. And by the way, don't let anyone tell you that this construct is not in the Old Testament. I'm preaching this out of Malachi. Sure, uh, sovereign, unconditional, redemptive, that is, it costs something. The sacrifices point to that cost. And elective, he chooses by the good pleasure of his own will to do this. So that's the bedrock of our faith. And it's also the first thing that provokes us to worship. We've spoken about that at some length last week and the week before. But there is a second thing, a second aspect that we need to mention because it also is a provoker of worship. It is true whether or not we worship God or not, or worship, choose to worship God, but still for the believer who is now in God's love, who understands their acceptance in the beloved because of Christ, now the supreme greatness of God moves us to worship. The love of God for us in the supreme greatness of God. Look at verse 11 in Malachi as he's explaining why it's problematic that they are giving these lame sacrifices. Look what he says in verse 11. Malachi, speaking, of course, as a mouthpiece for God, he says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So he starts by saying, I love you. But now he's saying, you're not obeying me. But let me just tell you that my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Twice he declares himself to be great. This is why we ought to worship God. He is great. Now, outside of Christ, we don't recognize his greatness. We cower against it. But inside of Christ, inside the love of God, now we are moved by his greatness. Because you have a healthy fear of God now. You know how great he is. So his love and his greatness are the two things that provoke us to worship. We see it in Malachi. The first five verses are grounded in his love. And then at the end of the text of chapter 1, he starts talking about his greatness. So if my love does not compel you, then my greatness ought to. Look at verse 14. Cursed be the chief who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Uh, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Do you see the two aspects of God's character that call us to worship him, his love for us 
his sovereign, unconditional, redemptive, elective love, and his greatness, his kingship, his authority. Those two things together compel us to worship. They were being missed by the people in Malachi's day. Let us not miss them also. They provoke us to worship the love of God and the supreme greatness of God. Now, if you dwell on just one, I think you become imbalanced. You're, you become askew. If you only constantly call, talk about the love of God as if there is no call to his character, then you'll become imbalanced to one side. If you never, or if you, all you do is accent the greatness of God, that becomes this great God that we can never attain to, that we cannot have fellowship with. But when you put those together, the love of God that connects us with the great God, then you have the totality of the message of the good news of the gospel. And this is what provokes us to worship. And the beauty of this text is we have one term that combines these two things. The combination of the love of God and the greatness of God. What do you think it is? Look at verse 6. A son honors his father. Father is the term that combines the love of God and the greatness of God. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you, has, you say, how have we despised your name? So he goes to this imagery of a father, God our father. I hope we think of it differently. Fatherhood means he loves us. He holds us. He gives us security. But it also means he's our authority. He's great. I understand that human fathers aren't that great. I'm sure not. But there's a sense in which children look at their father as one who provides security and is also great. If you ask my children, they'll think I'm great. They think I can take on a lion. They think I could do great things, greater than I really can. But God, our Father, does love us with a sure love, and he is really great, supremely great. These two things are the starting point that compel us to worship. The love of God and the supreme greatness of God provoke us in this way. Tozer says something interesting. He asks the question, what is worship? Worship is to hold in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we Christians call our Father, which art in heaven. So what happens if we don't accept these? Because I'd submit to you that's what's going on here. They're not accepting this. Uh, the people of God in that day, and maybe us today, they're, they're failing to accept these two realities about God, that he loves us and that he is supremely great. He's our father. And because of that, what happens in worship transpires. Now, before we consider that, remember the clear instruction, the book of Exodus and then Leviticus 22. Listen to Leviticus 22 about how they were to conduct themselves in the sacrificial codes. It says in Leviticus 22:19, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or of the sheep or of the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. So they understood what they were doing. Verse 21, Leviticus 22. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd of the from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs. Pretty gross, isn't it? But could you, could you mis mistake these instructions in any way by what animal you would bring? He's as clear as he could be on this and how we ought to worship, how they ought to worship at that time. 
shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them, because in their mutilation they will not be accepted for you. But look what's happening. Look at verse 6 of Malachi 1. The second part of the verse says, But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So they're making a statement by bringing those. They're saying it's okay to despise the Lord's table. Look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The governors of this day would accept about anything from the Jewish people. They didn't give taxes easily. So this is a statement of how cheap their offerings had become. Look at later in the text, Malachi 1, verse 13, second part of verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence. It's been stolen. You stole someone else's goat on the way to the temple and offered it. It's hard to get worse than that. Is that not evil? Asks the Lord. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hands, says the Lord? Verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has male in his flock. And I looked at how do you translate the word cheat in Hebrew. It's tough. It's, it's an unusual word. It doesn't appear often. And cheat is a good word for it. You're a cheat, is what he says. Bows it and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. What does this have to do with us? When our offerings are lame, it is an indicator that we either doubt the love of God or we presume upon it and we forget the greatness of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? When our offerings are lame, it's because we doubt the love of God for us or we're presuming upon it and we leave out the supreme greatness of God. We are to bring our best offering. There is no question. Our best, not what's left over. And I don't mean just money. I'm talking about your day. I mean, don't just, at the end of the day, Lord, if I have some time, I might sit down and, and pray. How about starting the day with a simple prayer, just making that day an offering? I'm not suggesting you do a, an hour and a half exegetical study every, every morning. But just an acknowledgement to the Lord before your feet hit the floor. But this is for you, Lord. It's your day. See if that won't help. Making that offering. The offering of lame animals uh, reveals really the two-dimensional nature to the problem, though. I want us to consider there are two things that are spoken of here. First of all, it's a leadership problem. Look at Malachi 1, verse 6 again. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? Who's he talked to? Oh, priests who despise my name. You see, this is a leadership problem first. When worship is lame, it starts with the leadership. That's the first place it needs to be checked. The leadership is there for a reason, and they have a prophetic role. And as I said earlier, I don't mean predictive. I mean prof- prophetic in the sense that they say forth, the leadership, the ordained leadership, what the truth of God's word is. And it will go against the spirit of the age often, and you still say it. That's what being a leader is. Because it starts there. It's a gatekeeper level. Leadership is responsible for calling sin what it is. By accepting lame animals from the people. Remember, the priest didn't raise the animals. They were given the lame animals. By accepting them, they were telling the people, this is okay what you're doing. And that is never right for the leadership of God's church to tell people it's okay to sin. You know what really burdens me today? When I see people with robes on saying that homosexuality is okay. When I see people with robes on saying that unbiblical divorce is okay. When I see people with robes on saying that it's okay, it's somehow mercy to murder an unborn baby. That leadership 
would be best to have a rope tied around their neck with a millstone tied to it rather than they cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is what's sick about our day. People calling themselves the church in institutionalizing sin. We see the problem in Malachi's day. The priests were taking lame animals. Could you imagine them taking a goat that was bleeding, it had a broken leg, and saying that was okay? We're not doing much different, brothers and sisters, if we don't speak truth as leaders. Look at verse 10 of Malachi. It's powerful. It says, to the priests now he's speaking, Oh, that there were one of you, one priest among you, who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Just one of you priests, would you just shut the door? It'd be better that you shut this door than continue to defame my name this way. That's my prayer that God would shut the doors of those places where leadership no longer proclaims the word of God, the truth of God's word, because our culture needs it. It's the only thing that will transform it. May he shut the doors there as well. But you know what? It's not just a leadership problem. We see it in Malachi's day. The priests, they took it. Of course, it was their fault for taking it. Uh, they are responsible. They are, leadership has a, another level of accountability. And James, this does not let many of you become teachers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is true. But did they have a knowledge of the law? Yes. Did they know what Leviticus 22 said? Yes. And if I am unfaithful to you, if your elders are unfaithful, unfaithful to you in delivering the word of God, now if that's a continual thing, you shouldn't come here. But if they're unfaithful in some way or we make an error, which is possible, or human, are you off the hook? Do you have a New Testament in your hand? Do you have an Old Testament in your hand? Do you have the Bible? Is it written in English? Are you able to understand it? Are there sources for you to better understand it? It's not to let the congregation off here at all. There's a responsibility that goes with the congregation. The people who are bringing those animals, yes, the priests were not doing their job. They were propagating. They were even endorsing sin. But still... The people had the revelation of God's truth there. We have the complete Bible. There is a responsibility level that we have as members of a congregation of God's church to know his word and obey it, even when leadership fails. Well, we see that their offerings suffered. Their offerings were wrong, what they brought, as a result of being disconnected with the love of God and the supreme greatness of God. But notice also that they lose the blessing of fellowship with God. And this is probably the saddest aspect. There's this feeling of disconnect. They, they are covenant people who are in God's hands, but yet there's this loss of fellowship that occurs when sin enters in. And words could not be more sad or more frustrating than what you see in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Do you see this disfellowship between God and his people here? It's a sad thing. I don't, it's like the father whose son continues to rebel or child continues to rebel. And the child offers trite words of, oh, I'm sorry, Dad. And the father says it'd be better if you just didn't say anything than to say you're sorry when you don't mean it, when you continue to do what you're going to do. Do you see the father, the Father meaning love and supreme greatness saying, just don't talk to me. If that's what you're going to say, just don't do it. Don't talk. What does fellowship that is like in, 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 our, in our world with family? But when God the Father says to us, just, just don't even bother saying it. Your heart's far. Your heart's far from it. It leads to something else. Not just the disfellowship that we sense, 
but discontent and dissatisfaction. Look at verse 13. But you say, and this is just an insight to their head and their mind and their emotions, what a weariness this is. This is drudgery. This is just awful. I can't believe I've got to do this again. I mean, think of the worst thing. Uh, go, to the doc- go to the dentist. There you go. I don't think we have any dentists, like I said. Go to the dentist. I mean, just do you look forward to that? Uh, just go into the, especially if you, I mean, you have a cavity, you want someone to do something because it hurts or toothache. But it's just, do you get up for that? Are you just excited to go in? It's exciting, you know. Uh, you, you name something. It's just drudgery. You're like, oh, I can't go in. I've got to go in, but I, I don't want to go. They're saying this about worship, about meeting God. They're saying what weariness this is. And look at the term again, another Hebrew term that's hard to capture. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You know, I don't know what compared to like going like that maybe. Whatever noise we make that's inaudible. Just saying we, we're so fed up with it. We, we don't, that's what they're talking about with God. They snort at it. You bring what has been taken by violence. Now it's turned the corners. Not only that they're kind of uh, making a decision subconsciously, but they're saying they're snorting at God. They're going to do it, and they're going to, on top of it, going to give them a stolen animal. So now it's turned from, not, from just being careless to outright vindictive worship, if you want to call it worship anymore. And this you bring as your offering shall accept it from your hand. What happens in their lives is discontentment, dissatisfaction, and it's it's united to this misunderstanding of who God is. It all goes back and all comes back around to our view. What your view of God is will determine how you worship. It will determine your life. I mean, it is that important. The study of God is that important. It's more important than any other study because you see everything else through it. And if you see God as someone who can never be pleased, an ogre in the sky trying to exact his pound of flesh, if that's the way you look at God, then you'll live your life that way. You'll grow discontent and dissatisfied. You'll be depressed, quite frankly. It'll work on you. You'll get to a point where you cannot come up above the water. Your head will seem like it's sinking. If you have this picture of this God who is all accepting and all loving, you'll finally get to the point, well, what good is he? If everyone is in, if everyone's accepting, anything is possible, tolerate everything, you'll get to the point of hopelessness where I was, quite frankly, even as a teenager, thinking either everything is absurdism or what the Bible says is true. It was a, a definite crossroad in my own life. Either what this Jesus says, it's elitist, it's exclusive, is true, or nothing matters. Both lead to discontent and dissatisfaction, ultimately. Brothers and sisters, may we come full circle together. Do you see that the offerings that people were bringing revealed the devotion of their heart? Ask yourself, really, really practically, what is it that you give to the Lord? What is it that you give to Him? Moms, do you think in terms of your raising small children as something that no one cares about or that doesn't mean anything to anyone? Or do you see it as the mission that God has given you and the offering you give to him as obedience in that mission, even in the areas that only you know about or only you and God know about? No one sees all the things you do through a day. No one understands the pain it is when you have to tell someone a hundred times to pick up this or pick up that. Hopefully it's not your husband. All the frustration that goes into being a mom. Fathers, just the overwhelming burden of being responsible for your family. Knowing you're a sinner. Knowing all too well you're a sinner, yet your children are looking to you. Your wife's looking to you for security. For a certain amount of uh, confidence. That could be overwhelming. Do you see that as an offering to God? Being faithful in that role as an offering. As someone who's employed by someone who's given great responsibility with someone else's money, quite frankly. Do you see that as an offering you give to God, being faithful in that? No matter what happens to you no matter what employee, other employees say about you, whatever may occur. Students, children, do you see your day at work or at school, which is your work, 
your day uh, learning, do you see that as your offering to the Lord? You know, oh man, I don't, school's tough. It's your offering at this point. And that attitude will pervade all of the things you give to the Lord, your time, your talent, and your resources, just knowing that what you're doing is fulfilling, it's responding to God, whatever it is. It's a lifestyle of worship that is rooted in understanding the love of God for us and his supreme greatness. Close with the words of Augustine who says, Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a great God. Lord, we recognize we would not understand this greatness if it were not for your love for us. God, I pray that each of us here, members of Redeemer, would be focused upon your love and your greatness, that we might be provoked to worship, that we'd order our day differently, just knowing that it is an offering to you, and that it would manifest itself in these times of corporate worship where we come together to fellowship with your people, to renew friendships uh, through, that have been uh, delayed throughout the week, but also to gather uh, around your throne and worship you and collectively worship you, acknowledging that we're sinners, O oh Lord, but that you've given us a clear mission, that you've given us the ability to fulfill that mission in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified by a church that is obedient to you, living in reaction to your love and to your greatness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.